This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, Jennifer Lawrence, is starring in two new films, the fourth and final installment of the action series The Hunger Games and the new film Joy. Joy is Lawrence's third film directed by David O. Russell. All three, Joy, Silver Linings Playbook, and American Hustle, also starred Bradley Cooper and Robert De Niro. Lawrence won the Best Actress Oscar for Silver Linings Playbook. She was nominated for Oscars for American Hustle and her breakthrough role in the independent film Winter's Bone. Joy is a comic drama loosely based on the story of Joy Mangano, who invented the Miracle Mop and other household objects and became known not only for her inventions but for her sales pitches on QVC and the Home Shopping Network. In the film, before Joy is a successful businesswoman, she's lost. Her mother is so depressed she stays in bed watching soap operas. Her father, played by De Niro, is temporarily sharing the basement with Joy's ex-husband. Nobody's getting along, and Joy is having trouble supporting her two young children. When she invents a mop that is self-ringing, so that you don't hurt your hands wringing it out, she can't find anyone to sell it until she goes to QVC and meets with an exec played by Bradley Cooper. He likes the mop and gets one of QVC's best on-air pitchmen to sell it on-air. But that guy botches the on-air demonstration, and no one buys the mop. In this scene, Joy arrives at QVC unannounced and corners the Bradley Cooper character, trying to get a second chance. I'm in a meeting with our lawyers. What do you think you're doing? Go home, Joy, and watch the numbers roll in on television. Make 50,000 mops, borrowing and owing every dollar, including your home. It could have been handled better. I'll let Todd have another shot. I don't want Todd or anyone else to try it. It should be me. We don't have regular people. We have celebrities who spokesmodels do the selling. I told you this. Who showed you the mop? Who sold it to you? Who taught you how to use it? And who convinced you that it was great after you thought it was worthless? Excuse me, can you give us a second? That's a scene from Joy. Jennifer Lawrence, welcome to Fresh Air. As part of your preparation for the film, did you try out the miracle mop, the self-ringing miracle mop? Um, I did not. I probably should have. I can't believe I, you I, didn't. I, I, well, I, was, I, I, did, I did mop, but I didn't have a miracle mop. I had a sponge mop. <laughs> they did mop, and then there was a mop in my trailer. And so I would practice it, you know, practice like technique and then and just kind of getting getting used to it. And there were so many miracle mops on set. I would start working them and, and like really just trying to study it because the amazing thing about joy, a lot of people have inventions or they have ideas and then they bring it to somebody else and say, I have this idea. I don't know how to make it. But joy grew up in a metal garage. So she was in complete control of all of her creations. And this is how I want it to be made which is very different than just having an idea. So I, I studied the mop more to just try to understand somebody's mind, peeling it back and looking at each, you know, how would you think that this clipping out of this and then a cup holding here and then all of that fascinated me. So I dealt with the mop, but when I first showed Bradley Cooper in the showroom the mop, he watched me and he was like, no, 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 Jen, that's not how you mop. And he showed me how to properly mop. <laughs> I read that Bradley Cooper actually used the miracle mop when he was in college. He did. His mom watched watched QVC every day. They always had QVC boxes in the house. I mean, he knew all about that world. Um, and I knew nothing. And uh, I had an OCD mom. So she would always <laughs> give us a bunch of chores and tell us 
uh, what to do, but she ac- couldn't actually live with it being done the wrong way. So it never actually mattered. She would always end up doing it. <laughs> so one, one, one of the trademarks of David Russell's movies, p- particularly the trilogy that, that you're in, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle, and, and Joy, is that they're very kinetic. There's always movement happening, like characters are walking in and out of the frame, like scenes just kind of blend into another. And I'm wondering how aware you are of that when you're on camera and the film is being shot. Do you have any sense of what it's going to look like, how it's going to be edited, how kinetic it's going to be? No, um, and it's such a great thing because on set you know every time you do a movie it's scary because you can read a script and say I love this script oh this is a great co-star this movie's going to be great but you don't really have control over it you know you can walk onto a set and be like this set is terrible this is you know you start watching the director and you don't have any control um, but with David I have a, a thousand percent trust so I, I all I do is focus on my performance and it's not until seeing the movie that I see an amazing camera move that he did you know or notice that Eastern Airlines like zoom zoom in past all of the people um, or something like that on the day I, I don't I, I don't pay attention to, to any of it one of the things he does not like to do is to say cut so from your perspective as an actor in his films, what difference does it make whether he's yelling cut or not? I don't know. I've never really particularly noticed him not really calling cut. I mean, what, I think that he likes, everybody refers to his sets. You know, everybody everybody says the same thing. It's crazy and it's hectic. And, you know, I've said it too. And it's, it's hectic and it's just nuts. You know, but I think that there's a real specificity <laughs> that we just don't really realize but he's doing all of that on purpose he wants all of the energy translated in on the scenes in the movie he wants everybody on their feet everybody's on their toes you never know when the camera is going to move and be on you so you are in the scene the whole time even the camera guys i mean the real movie is watching the camera guys try to keep up with all this there's a little light guy with this you know like a light on a stick and they're just running around trying to zoom and get everything so when you call cut and everything stops everything dies and then you call action, and then you have to get started up again. I think that probably he's just trying to keep momentum and keep the energy up and keep people on their toes. Um, how many takes do you like to do when you're shooting a scene, and how does that compare, say, with Robert De Niro, who who you've worked with on um, other films with David O. Russell? I've never noticed um, Bob feeling one way or the other about about takes. Um, David doesn't really do a lot of takes. You know, the first time I did the QVC, her first time on camera, you know, and there was a, I had to quickly memorize this monologue. I didn't really know that I was going to have to do it, which is my fault. I didn't really pay attention to what I was doing when I came in to work, and then I was trying to memorize it, and David did a whole 360 shot around my head and then was like, cut, move on, and I was like, oh, my God, please, please let me have another one. Um, I think it depends completely on the scene because sometimes... I feel like it dies, you know, after, especially with emotional scenes. It's fresh two, maybe three times, and then you just lose the feeling, like that adrenaline just kind of goes away, and then you're just copying what you were doing before, which is fine, because um, it's necessary and a part of the job. Sometimes with dialogue, it's not until the 10th or 11th time, and all of a sudden you start hearing it, and you're like, oh, that's what I'm saying. So it, it it's really just depends. The first movie that you made with David O. Russell was Silver Linings Playbook. You won an Oscar for your role in that. Um, So I want to play a scene from that. 
Bradley Cooper plays someone who has bipolar disorder. He gets out of a mental facility, mental health facility, at the beginning of the film. He is obsessed with getting back with his wife who has left him. In the meantime, you play his best friend's sister-in-law. You're a young widow who has your own mental health issues, but um, you get him, you understand him, and you've enlisted him to be your partner in a dance competition. But one day he doesn't show up for rehearsal because his father, played by De Niro, (laughs) needs him at the Eagles game. The father is a bookmaker, and he's got a lot of money riding on this game. But Cooper gets into a fight at a tailgate party, never makes it into the stadium. And when the Eagles lose, the father blames Bradley Cooper's character for the loss and for bringing bad luck. And he's blaming you, too, for bringing bad luck because you think he thinks you're taking up too much of Bradley Cooper's time. So this ta- scene takes place at the home of the Bradley Cooper and Robert De Niro characters, their family, after the game, after the Eagles lose. And um, you walk in, and De Niro tells you that the bad luck is basically your fault. Ever, ever since, ever since he was with you, ever since you he was... You think that I'm why today's happened. That's right. You are why I'm today's I'm the reason happened. why today happened. I think so. Let's talk about that. Be my guest. The first night that Pat and I met at my sister's, the Eagles beat the 49ers handily 40 to 26. The second time we got together, we went for a run, and the Phillies beat the Dodgers 7-5 to in the NLCS. She's right, Dad. The next time we went for a run, the Eagles beat the Falcons 27-14. to wow. The third time we got together, we had Raisin Bran in the diner, and the Phillies dominated Tampa Bay in the fourth game of the World Series 10-2. to Oh, wow. Fascinating. Oh, let me think about that. Wait a minute. Well, why don't you think about when the Eagles beat the Seahawks 14 to 7? He was with you? He was with me. We went for a run. Really? There have been no games since Pat and I have been rehearsing every day. And if Pat had been with me like he was supposed to, he wouldn't have gotten in a fight. He wouldn't be in trouble. Maybe the Eagles beat the New York Giants. She's making a lot of sense, Pop. That's all right on all accounts. <laughs> That's Jennifer Lawrence in a scene from Silver Linings Playbook. David O. Russell sometimes gives actors music to listen to to help set the mood. Has he given you music to listen to for for your roles? A little bit. Uh, that's We normally start arguing about that, though. I always think it's annoying, um, but it's necessary. But I was asleep one time. We were flying to New York together, and I was I was fast asleep on a, on a flight, and all of a sudden there was an earbud shoved in my ear with music. <laughs> from Raging Bull. And I was like, what the fuck? Um, so it, it, it's basically everything that David and I argue about on the day that I think is unnecessary. David, I don't want to talk about the scene. I don't want you to go through the whole movie with me. Like, I know what the movie is about. Let's go. I don't want to listen to this song when I see the movie and I see what he's doing and how he's put everything together. Um, I'm always wrong. I, it will always change something in some way that I didn't know, you know, in Silver Linings when Bradley and I are at a diner and I'm talking about how I got fired from work by having sex with everybody in the office. I, I had read the scene one way. and David, Bradley and I had both read it a certain way and we're doing the scene and then David told us to do the entire thing in slow motion, which seemed like a crazy note. And um, we did. And that is the scene that, that's the take they ended up using. And it looks phenomenal. And it felt so weird. And all, you know, I questioned him. I, I think on the next one I'll finally stop questioning him. So what was the difference between the way you were doing it and the slow motion in terms of the meaning it gave that scene? 
Um, I was just doing it very matter of fact. You know, this is what happened. I, I, you know, so I had sex with everybody in the office and then I got fired. And, you know, so then I sued them for sexual harassment. Just kind of how somebody would discuss over dinner how you got fired from your job without really any feeling in it. You know, just kind of, yeah, this happened. Um, and when he told me to do it in slow motion, I realized I was seducing Bradley. And that changed the whole meaning of the scene in the moment. Um, because and then that made complete sense because that, of course of course she would be because she probably is doing that she probably seduces people without even knowing that she's doing it that's where her comfort lies is being found sexy by people how did you get the role of Katniss in the Hunger Games what did you have to do in the audition did you have to show off your use of a bow and arrow I did not that came after the the job um I auditioned. I auditioned with the scene after I've been chosen, after I volunteer and I have to say goodbye to my family. Um, and the scene with Peta in the cave when his leg is hurt. Um, yeah, I auditioned and the director cried, which I took as a good sign. And then I left and um, they offered it to me. I really wanted it really badly. I loved the books. I loved the idea of it. And then when they offered it to me, it took a few days before saying yes, which uh, an executive told me later he thought was a negotiating move, which it wasn't. Um, it really hit me what a huge decision it was. It was such a, you know, Twilight had come out and we had seen how big those were and how instant that was. And I had really, you know, kind of done indies and I, I just thought it needed more thought, you know, a yes or no question very rarely changes your entire life You're just saying yes to something so I just thought it needed some thought so I thought about it for a few days and I said yes and I'm very happy I did what was the thought process like when you were weighing the pros and cons of saying yes what, what were some of the things in each column um, I would go you know if I was sitting I remember sitting with a friend Eating and I was just wondering, you know, what what is it going to be like, like a year from now, if this, these movies come out? Am I even going to want to be able to do this? My parents' house when I go home, like it's not private. Are our neighbors going to, you know? And I was I was right about all of these things. My parents did eventually have to move. I was just thinking about fame, really, and also just kind of my future. I don't know if men do this, but as a woman, I've always imagined being a mother and. Um, and I've always loved acting, but I didn't think it would take up a huge part of my life. I, I thought, you know, I'll act, I'll do some movies because I really love it. Um, and, and I was happy. I was originally just on a sitcom, and I was happy to just stay on the sitcom forever. And so I was kind of a little bit more casual about acting and was more kind of focused on a, my future kind of as a human and being a mom. And I don't know, what would, would that be like, being a super incredibly famous person how would that affect everything in my future? I just wanted to just think about it. And so when you decided to say yes, were you did, did you feel resigned to the downside of fame? A little bit. I mostly just kind of said, you know what, I love this character, I love this movie, I believe in it, and I'm going to say yes for the same reasons that I would say yes to any indie and then, but I was still afraid of those things. But I remember there was a moment when I was on set of The Hunger Games and I was like thinking about my life and I was like, you know what? 
I don't like going out. I'm a total homebody. I'm always looking for excuses not to go out. I was like, I'm actually probably built for this. I can now use fame as an excuse. I can't go there. I'm too famous. (laughs) And I do. I don't think I've ever heard that before. That it's a great excuse to not go out. You would if you were, if we had each other's numbers. I'd be like, Nah, why don't you guys come over here and we'll drink wine? I'm too famous to go to that restaurant. (laughs) So um, I know a little bit about a bow and arrow because when I was in summer camp, we were taught archery. So I feel like I'm qualified to (laughs) so qualified to ask you what was it like to learn how to become a master archer. It was really cool. I really, really enjoyed archery. I had an amazing instructor, Katuna. She was Georgian. Um, she was an excellent instructor, very strict. You know, if I had bad form, she'd pinch my ear. She would didn't really put up with anything. Um, and it totally changed my body. It was so crazy when I went back for the fitting for the second movie for Catching Fire. My shoulders were two inches broader. My right arm is one inch longer than my left arm permanently I guess but I really enjoy it she should actually punch your ear if you did something wrong not punch it pinch it oh pinch it (laughs) sorry god I'm happy we straightened that up she'd punch me in the head (laughs) great (laughs) so what what's one of the worst things you had to put yourself through in making the Hunger Games movies endurance wise um you know you really have to get in shape just to be able to film those movies because whatever i'm doing whatever you see whatever action sequence if it's running fighting whatever it is you know that's we're doing that for 12 hours a day or more the water stuff is very tricky and catching fire all of the water stuff was done in november and december in atlanta and freezing cold water so it's just a horrible feeling when you're shivering when you're dry and then you have to dive into freezing cold water it's just the worst um and i perforated my eardrum doing a water stunt when I had to jump into the water and there a jet perforated my eardrum and I'm an idiot so you know I couldn't hear for three days and I was like I don't have to go to the doctor and now I have like a permanent ear problem (laughs) can you hear in that ear I can hear fine it gets a little painful sometimes when flying overall I'm totally okay and don't need to be whining about it you mentioned fire I mean one of the things your character does is wear like a flaming a flaming costume and a dress that breaks into flames when you twirl. Uh, um, Is that like what magicians use? It was all CG. The only real fire we really dealt with was on the the first first movie. I had to run through a trail. There were fireballs being fired at me, and so these trees would ignite into fire, and so they would mark the trees and mark the path, run through here, and you'll be safe these trees are going to explode. Oh, and you start running and all the trees start exploding. You can't see the tape anymore. So I'm running. <laughs> I have no idea what tree is going to explode. <laughs> and it was the scariest thing I've ever done in my entire life because then I was really running through a forest of exploding trees with fire. And somebody made a video of it. And I was just like, how on earth did they ensure me to do this? <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of precautions do you insist on when you're doing a film like that? Safety precautions. None, really. I, I I always just kind of assume by the time I'm there, they've figured it out. There are some things in harness work that, I don't know, scares me as a woman. There's like these bands that push against 
what I assume would be like my female organ area. And I'm just like, I don't know. This doesn't seem right to be hanging from this with this much pressure for hours. So I put my foot down about that the other day at work. I was like, I have to be able to have children one day. I don't know if I want to hang from my uterus for four hours. (laughs) (laughs) This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross, back with Jennifer Lawrence. She stars in the new film Joy, which is one of three films, along with Silver Linings Playbook and American Hustle, that she's made with director David O. Russell. Lawrence is also starring in the Hunger Games films. The fourth and final episode is currently in theaters. As a woman who is now an action star, in addition to being an indie movie star, what are some of the things that viewers project onto you in your action star persona? Um, you mean like project onto me in my personal life? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like if I go to a spinning class, I'm like, God, I've got better. I can't quit. Everyone's going to be like, Katniss sucked out. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the expert. I mean, I think that there's, there. you're always aware just as a celebrity in general that there can be one moment, you know, I always hear my friends and, and, and family will tell a story about a celebrity. I don't think they're very nice because they were offered popcorn and they said, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of popcorn. It's like, who doesn't like popcorn? I don't think I like them anymore. And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> like, wh- how many things have I said that, like, you can't, it's amazing how you celebrities, there's this, some bizarre thing where, like, you say one thing, you do one thing, you know, and if you don't know a person, how you can judge the, your entire being based on, you know, one thing that you've said. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge amount of pressure. Your breakthrough role was in Winter's Bone, an independent film, and you play a a teenage girl in the Ozark Mountains where there isn't much work except cooking and selling meth, which your character's father and his friends do, but your father's arrested. He puts up the house for bail, then skips town. So unless you can track him down, your family, which, which, which is already pretty poor, is going to lose their house, which is basically all your family has. So you're going on around talking to all your father's friends, trying to figure out where is he. So I want to play a scene in which you're knocking on the door of one of the leaders of this meth ring, and that guy's wife answers the door. You got the wrong place, I expect. Who might you be? I'm Ree. My dad's Jessup Dolly. You ain't here for trouble, are you? No, ma'am. Because one of my nephews is Buster Leroy, and didn't he shoot your daddy one time? Yes. That ain't got nothing to do with me. They settled that themselves, I think. Shooting him likely settled it. What is it you want? I got a real bad need to talk with Thump. And he ain't got no need to talk to you. But I need to. I really, really got to, ma'am, please. Some of our blood at least is the same. Ain't that supposed to mean something? Isn't that what is always said? Ain't you got no men could do this? No, ma'am, I don't. I guess Jennifer Lawrence in the scene from Winter's Bone. So for this part, you were told you were too pretty. 
So did you, <laughs> what did you do to change that so you could get the part? Um, well, they turned me down and then they moved casting to New York and I put myself on a red eye to just show up to casting the next day in New York. Um, so that always helps. Red eye, not showering, no makeup. Um, I, I, eventually they went, oh, she's right. She's not cute. <laughs> you grew up in Kentucky near Louisville? In Louisville, yeah. In Louisville. And in, in school, were, were you athletic? Because you've done such athletic things for the Hunger Games. Yeah, our parents had a rule. We all had to be in sports. Um, so I played softball, basketball. I was a cheerleader. <laughs> um, and field hockey. Did you enjoy it? No, not at all. I hated team sports. Why? Um, I don't like being... I, I, I've always had anxiety about being in a herd. I felt that way in school. I even felt that way in field trips. I was like, ugh, felt like cattle or something. I don't know. I just wanted to break free, be an individual. <laughs> so I, I don't know. There was something about team sports, classes. I, I didn't take well to it. I, I didn't like it. Did you like solo sports? Yeah, eventually when I started learning or learning archery, I, I really enjoyed that. You know, with archery, you can see yourself as you practice getting closer and closer to the target. And it's just between you and your eyes and your shoulder blades <laughs> and your aim. And, and you know, it's, it's just between you and the bow. And I, I enjoy that. What got you interested in acting and in taking it seriously? Um, just loving it. I did an indie called The Poker House in between the hiatus for my sitcom, and I did Burning Plane, and, and I did Winter's Bone also all on the hiatus for the sitcom. Because when I first got on a sitcom, like I said, I was like, I'm good. I, I'm a Lucille Ball. I can be on a sitcom for the rest of my life. This is great. Um, and and then I fell in love. I fell in love with film. I, I loved I, – I, it's, it's really so much about just – pure acting with me I mean even when I'm when I have time off I, I just really miss acting so my love for acting turned into doing more movies and then that turned into a whole business side of things that you know I'm still pretty overwhelmed by figuring out the business of all of it when, when you were 14 you went to New York in the hopes of getting roles there did, did one of your parents go with you my mom was with me for when we went for spring break that was just going to be like a little trip um that we were going on together, and then um, I ended up getting discovered at Union Square, and I talked about it every single day. I talked about acting and uh, every single day when we went back to Kentucky, and eventually it was just like, I'm leaving, and I had saved up enough babysitting money, and I was like, I'm going. So they tried to find a, a nice balance between me kind of running away and being completely unsafe, and having a little bit of supervision. So I had a horrible apartment. It was completely rat-infested. Think it's in New York, gone now. Yeah, in New York, and uh, my brother went, who was eighteen, went with me at first, and my parents left us, and we were both like, we're gonna die. And then um, a girl who worked at my my parents' children's camp came out, and watched me for a little bit, and they would just kind of trade off. Eventually, my mom saw how happy I was, and how I didn't have anxiety anymore. I didn't have all of these things that I had when I was in school and unhappy. I was so happy that it's, I think it was kind of hard for her as a mother to send her back. Really, I, I think it also just kind of some sort of maternal instinct 
that she knew it was the right thing to do, which I'm so grateful for to this day. What kind um, of anxiety did you have? I don't know. I, I just like, I, I was, I remember just always feeling exhausted when I was at school. And, and I think about it now wondering what that is. I don't, I don't know if that's actors. I work with an actor who, who always says actors are chameleons. You know, even if you don't really realize you're adapting to kind of everyone that you're around, which I don't feel that way really about my personality. I don't really feel like I, I change who I am depending on who I'm with. But I think you feel a lot of things. The only way to do an emotional scene is to feel empathy for your character, to think what that character is going through and really open up and feel it. And now that I know what that is and that that's my job and I can channel that, I can understand that feeling. I understand when somebody's telling me a story and it's really sad and I feel like I can feel it. I know that that's just, it's just, it's normal for me now. But as a kid, I think by the time we'd get to lunch, I was so exhausted. I think I was around 100 kids and feeling every single thing. I, I don't really know. I, I've, I've tried to figure it out. I, maybe just, I mean, I guess the simple answer would be social anxiety. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, that kind of fits into you not wanting to go out even now, <laughs> like wanting to yeah. just stay home. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like being around. Ba- I get overwhelmed. My favorite thing, to, I, I much prefer just small circles of people who I actually want to be around and I actually want to talk to mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. being able to just be, you know, like when you're out and you've got to spend your whole night going, thank you. Oh my God. Yeah. They, like I look at people when my parent, my, my, I'm the age now where everybody's getting married. All my friends are getting married. And I'm like, you want to spend your whole night going, thanks, thank you, thank you for coming, thank you so much. You know, it just seems like a nightmare. It seems like a word season. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, being in an apartment at age 14 that had rats, um, I wouldn't be able to go to sleep at night. Uh, how how, how oh, did you... Oh, night was horrible. That's when they all come out. Uh-huh. How, how did you deal with that? I wouldn't go to the that? bathroom. I just um, I really wanted to... That My dad still talks about that. He says, that's when I knew you were serious. That's when I think that that was the turning point for my dad, letting me do this, because he came and saw the conditions I was living in, you know, no hot water. There was no kitchen. It was like a closet with a hot plate. Um, and I and I got to the point where I was literally just sharing food with rats because <laughs> I got I went to Chinatown that's where I got most everything or Dwayne Reed I didn't you know I didn't really have any money um, so like if a rat had eaten my loaf of bread you know before when I first got there I'd be like ew and throw the whole loaf of bread away but eventually I was like God I'm not gonna be able to afford bread so I started just cutting around the hole that the rat ate <laughs> got to the point where I was literally sharing food with a rat. Um, so that's when my parents were like, yeah, I think she really, really wants to do this. <laughs> so did they help you out financially? Eventually, yeah. We moved to L.A. Um, we we got in our car from Kentucky and we drove to L.A. And that's when I got on the sitcom and then they didn't need to support me financially anymore. So you mentioned you were discovered in New York in Union Square. Tell us the discovery story. I was watching street dancing, and some man named Daniel, I believe was his name, um, said, I'm a model scout. Can I take your picture? And I was like, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> um, my brothers always talked about how ugly I was. So that was a shock. Um, so I let him take my picture. And, you know, my mom and I didn't know that any of this was creepy. We were just from Kentucky. And it wasn't. It didn't end up being creepy, but that it could potentially be creepy. And so she gave him her number and he called the next day and said, oh, you know, all these modeling agencies want to meet with her and we didn't have anything else to do in New York. So we went to the meetings and then somewhere in there I read my first script and I, I just, I knew. So your brother used to tell you you were ugly? 
Yeah, I you know they were brothers. They used to call me Uggs before Uggs were you know the boots. Did you believe um, them? And yeah, but it didn't. I didn't care. It didn't matter. I, I feel like if I have a daughter one day and she asks me if she's pretty, I'm just gonna be like, why does it matter? I never, I never grew up with that ever. It, it didn't really matter to me. Yeah, I like your answer. Um, why does oh, it matter? Oh, That's good. It yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, yeah, they were. I remember one time crying because these girls at school left me out. They were everybody was going to the movies and they didn't invite me. And and my mom was trying to comfort me and she goes, "They just, they're just jealous of you." My brother walks in and goes, "Don't tell her that. They probably don't like her because she's." An <laughs> he goes, don't ever think. He goes, don't ever think somebody doesn't like you because they're jealous. My grandmother used to say way it's, too much it's because they're jealous, and, and I knew, I knew that was not it. I know it's such an. It's really like an annoying. I, I don't really totally think that that's a answer. very good lesson to teach somebody. I think yeah. you should look in at yourself. If you feel like somebody doesn't like you, think back. Is there something you could have done? Mm-hmm. Uh, could you have offended them? I don't think I should just go, oh, you're just jealous. Like, why would you raise? Why would you put that <laughs> in your kid's head? Like, my mom, bless her heart, you know, this is what moms are for, and I'm probably going to do the same thing when I'm a mother, you know, when we're watching Joy, and then I forgot that the singing part comes on, and I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, and I put my hands over my head. I'm like, I can't watch it. I can't watch it. And my mom listens. She goes, you are the best singer in the entire world. You are the greatest singer in the whole <laughs> world. <laughs> just very sweet, but I'm like, but but that's just not true. <laughs> so you said a couple of things, a couple of big public statements that have actually made news. I want to ask you about what you said after the Sony hack, mm-hmm. and when a lot of Sony emails. People, executives who worked at Sony, a lot of their emails were, were made public. And through those emails, you learned that men you worked with on movies were getting paid much more for those movies than you were. Mm-hmm. And you attributed it to a, a gender double standard. And you, you wrote about it. In Lena Dunham's uh, publication, Lenny, you wrote, I didn't get mad at Sony. I got mad at myself. I failed as a negotiator because I gave up early. I didn't want to keep fighting for millions of dollars that, frankly, due to franchises, I don't need. Parentheses, I told you this wasn't relatable. Don't hate me. (laughs) And then you wrote, but if I'm honest with myself, I would be lying if I didn't say there was an element of wanting to be liked that influenced my decision to close the deal without a real Mm -hmm. fight. I didn't want to seem difficult or spoiled. Then you say you realized from the hack that, quote, every man I was working with definitely didn't worry about being difficult or spoiled. So how did you decide to say that in public? I was aware of gender inequality, of the, you know, 21% general pay gap between men and women. And, and um, you know, when that hack happened and I, and I saw those numbers, I, I really didn't look at that and say something unfair was done to me. I think that it's very possible that when, you know, when we're talking about this gender bias, that it also exists in us as women. Um, that we, it's very possible as individuals, are doing this to ourselves. That we have a historical, global reputation that isn't being a um, a baller or badass or being aggressive. You know, that's not attractive to to do those things. But more than that, you know, but that wasn't really the pay gap. The pay gap, and, and why I wanted to discuss it was because I was like, if I'm having these feelings. And I, it's my own kind of mentality that's getting in my own way, and these statistics are inarguable. Maybe I'm not the only woman who feels this way, and I figured if I had a voice, I should use it in case there are other women out there that 
that are not getting paid or not asking for money the way that they should be um, because of, of, of the, the same kind of relatable feelings that I was having. So did that affect your ability to uh, equalize the playing field financially? I'm still working on it. You know, I wish that I could say I, I wrote it and then and then boom, the problem was fixed. But that's just not true. I was writing about a very true problem that I have that, you know, I, I'm, I'm still struggling with it. How did you start thinking this way? Did you always think this way? Is this a kind of thinking um, that came recently to you? Um, I think I've always been outspoken uh, and opinionated, but I've, I, I'm growing up and learning more. But I'm talking specifically um, about just thinking from, in terms of gender, about what gender equality gender, means now. It was now. recent. It was recent. It was getting into. It was getting into the world of commerce. It was getting into you know ha having a um, having a power on mm -hmm. set and not wanting to use it or not wanting to recognize it because, oh, well, I, I just want to be likable. I just want to be likable. And then realizing you just get screwed over. So I think it, it just came, it developed over time from um, from working because I, don't, I, I, was, I was saying yes to these things and doing overtime for free and all this stuff because I wanted to be liked. It just seemed ridiculous. And I didn't meet one actor who would do the same. I didn't meet one male actor who did the same thing. After your iCloud account was hacked and naked pictures of you were posted, you called it um, a sexual violation. And you, you said, anybody who looked at those pictures, you're perpetuating a sexual offense. You should cower with shame. You were quoted as saying that in Vanity Fair. And that's a very strong thing to say. And I thought it was very interesting that instead of, you know, be being embarrassed or anything that, that these pictures were shown, you expressed anger not only at whoever hacked and posted these, but at anybody who was just going to look at it thinking, like, well, well, it's posted. Everybody else is looking, so why can't I? You, you said they were guilty, too. Can you talk about deciding how to frame your feelings about the hack of your photos? I wasn't the first victim of that. You know, there have been hacks like that going on for years, and I have never once, ever looked at a photo of a naked person's body without their permission. I think that that's a disgusting thing to do. It's unthinkable. I, I would never do it. Those hacks have happened for years, and it's it's. I would feel so creepy looking at someone's naked body without their permission. And, you know, when it happened to me, I wasn't embarrassed. I was, uh, it was, I was in a long-distance relationship for four and a half years. And even if I wasn't in a long-distance relationship, it wouldn't matter. It was my body. It was my private email. Um, and I had the freedom to do what I wanted. And I, um, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was angry. Hackers are hackers. And hackers are gross, disgusting perverts. And what they did was wrong. Um, and that goes without saying. But the idea that when something becomes popular all of a sudden it's it's now okay it's just shocking how it, it it's not personal to people anymore it's why people can say whatever they want about me and in the news or or they can hear me say one thing about me not liking popcorn and then judge my entire personality it's like as soon as you're a celebrity you it's so impersonal but but those pictures were incredibly personal to me and my naked body i haven't shown on camera i haven't done any you know by choice it's my body 
And um, I felt angry at websites reposting them. Um, and I, I can't really describe to you the feeling that took a very long time to go away, wondering at any point who's just passing my body around, who's got a picture of my body on their phone and is at a barbecue and looking at them, or who's, it's, it was uh, an unshakable, really, really awful feeling that um, after it healed a little bit made me incredibly angry. So you're involved with two projects now that I'm very excited about. One is you're working on a project with Amy Schumer. Yeah. And the other is you're going to play Lindsay Adario, the great yes. uh, uh, New York Times war photographer um, who wrote a terrific memoir about her experiences in war zones. Um, so um, t- tell us a little bit about one of those projects before we wrap up. Uh, oh, I have to choose? Well, why don't we go with the Amy Schumer, because I think that's more of a wild card. Okay, good, because, <laughs> yeah, because I'm more involved in that one. Because okay. <laughs> um, I have no uh, idea what, what that project is. Um, the, the Amy Schumer and Kim Schumer, her sister, and I uh, finished a script about a week ago. Um, it's a comedy, um, and we we really love it. It's just now starting to get passed around. We're, we're hopefully going to make it. You know, Amy, I've never seen this side of her before, this character that she's going to be playing. Nobody's seen the the, the character that I'm going to be playing um, as a new side of me. Um, and it was incredibly fun to develop. And the two of them being sisters, Kim and Amy, that get along like siblings I've never seen before and being an incredible writers has brought such a harmonious, unbelievable, wonderful relationship to the screen, you know, that helped us develop these characters so kind of quickly and thoroughly. I'm really excited about that. I'm wondering if it's uh, particularly fulfilling for you to work with uh, Amy and Kim Schumer because so much of their writing has a kind of um, a gender awareness to it, a kind of feminist bent. And these are things that are obviously rising to the surface in, in your concerns about, you know, uh, pay equality, about nude photos, about how women are perceived. Of course, you're doing it as a, as a comedy and not as like a, a, a speech. Yeah. Amy and I are both um, share, Amy, Kim and I all kind of share similar uh, politics and um, you know, and they're they're brilliant. They're some of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. Amy um, is so incredibly observant. People, I mean, even my dog, she can imitate my dog perfectly. <laughs> she's um, she's a very brilliant woman. And um, yeah, and we 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 did we didn't the comedy. It's not very broad. It's it's um, it's got some feeling in it. Well, I look forward to seeing it. Thank you so Thank much you. for talking with us. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jennifer Lawrence stars in the new film Joy and in the fourth and final installment of The Hunger Games. Tomorrow on Fresh Air... What is it to be human? What is it to ache? What is it to be alive? The new movie Anomalisa, about loneliness and disconnection, is told through stop-motion animation using puppets and miniature sets, but it looks oddly authentic. I'll talk with the film's directors, Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson. Kaufman also wrote Anomalisa, as well as the film's Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, and The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I hope you'll join us. 
Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Sam Brigger. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Dorothy Farabee is our administrative assistant. Our associate producer for online media is Molly C.V. Nesper. John Myers directed the show. I'm Terry Gross. Thank you.